politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. My guest today is Tom Weidlinger. He's an author, mostly he's a filmmaker, and he's made many award-winning films that you can easily find on the internet. What we're going to be talking to Tom about today is a book and a movie that he wrote about his very famous father, Paul Weidlinger. Tom's movie, The Restless Hungarian, book of the same name, is going to be shown at the upcoming Mendocino Film Festival. Actually, I think it's called now the International Mendocino Film Festival. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. Good to be here. I'm going to begin by reading something from the introduction to your book. Again, The Restless Hungarian. Subtitle, by the way, is Modernism, Madness, and the American Dream. From the introduction, this is about his dad, Paul. He taught himself to read at the age of four. He was a communist when he was 14. He was arrested and sentenced to death when he was 18. He slept rough under bridges in Paris while apprenticed to the famous architect, the Cabousier. He almost got my mother, this is Tom talking about his mother, he almost got my mother arrested by the Gestapo. He made and lost a fortune in Bolivia. In New York, he started a world-renowned company just so he'd have enough money to pay my mother's insane asylum bills. He was a close friend to the real Dr. Strangelove. He helped protect the world from nuclear Armageddon. And, and then Tom says, I found these stories hard to believe. Well, take it from there, Tom. You found the stories hard to believe, but what did you do with them? Well, um, after my father died in 1999, um, I received a box of his papers and um, I, uh, I opened the box and there were, were documents from his entire life in five different languages because he spoke English, Hungarian, German, Spanish, French. And um, I started to read them. And it, at first I became extremely sleepy. I mean, I couldn't read all the languages, obviously. Um, and, and I realized I did not want to go back to my childhood. Uh, so I, I put this box of papers on a shelf for uh, 15 years and um, didn't look at them. And then by a strange series of, of coincidences, um, I the house that my father built the year I was born, which is a, a mid-20th century modernist house on Cape Cod, had um, become derelict and had been uh, on National Park Service land. And some architects decided to restore it. And I volunteered to work on the carpentry crew to restore my father's house. And um, it was a very strange experience because uh, while I was pounding nails, I was having flashbacks from my childhood there. 
um, which were, uh, which was actually quite traumatic. Um, but at the same time, I became curious about this man who had designed this house, uh, who I had not really known very well. And uh, at that point, I um, went home, I opened the box of his papers, um, hired translators to translate these documents, and found out that most of the crazy stories that he told about himself were actually true. Um, and I also discovered that he had, well, I knew this before, I knew this before, that he was a Hungarian Jew who had uh, fled the Holocaust in 1939 to South America, but he'd completely hidden his identity as a Jew in this country when he arrived here, as well as from me and his entire family. So um, this was a, a kind of shocking revelation and it also made kind of sense because there were a lot of gaps in his, in his stories about himself. So I decided to, um, to start investigating his life. And um, I, I started into it as I would as a documentary filmmaker, you know, researching the context and the background and the history of, of an individual who happened to be my father, but I was kind of looking at him, you know, as, as a man in his world and his accomplishments. Um, uh, traveled across three continents, uh, did 50 interviews of people who had known him or had known of him, um, collected this huge amount of, of information, and then realized that there was such a complexity to his life that uh, it couldn't all be contained in a documentary film. So I decided to write a book. Uh, which I'd never done before. Um, and uh, I started writing a book. Um, I wrote the first draft in about three months, um, sent it to a friend of mine who's a writer and who worked as my editor. And she said, well, you're, you're thinking like a filmmaker. Well, I said, I am a filmmaker. Um, but she said, well, you're imagining the images on the screen and you're just writing the narration. And I said, oh, yeah, you're right. So the second draft of the book took three years. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's, um, it's a historical memoir and his life intersected with very interesting um, events, historical events and movements in the 20th century. You know, the, the rise of modernism, um, uh, the Jewish diaspora, um, the Holocaust, the Cold War. Um, and then there's this whole other story, which is the story of my relationship to him. It became much more difficult to write the book and make the film when I started addressing the period in his life after I was born, because I became a part of his life. And um, trained as a journalist, you know, it's, it's, you don't, you don't insert yourself into the story. I mean, it's, one should be a quote unquote objective and humble before one's subject. And suddenly I'm this character in this story and how do I deal with that? And, um, that was, uh, 
that that was a real challenge. And particularly the parts that were a challenge were, were writing about my mother who uh, was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and, um, and my sister who, who committed suicide, um, both of which had a profound impact um, on the entire family. As I recall, your sister committed suicide and also um, took her son uh, with her when, yes. she, when she went. And both events happened when you were 17 years old. That is correct, yeah. yeah. So now you're writing about and making a film about this tragedy that happened to you when you were 17. And at that time, when your sister committed suicide, were your parents already uh, separated or divorced? Yes, yeah, they divorced when I was eight, yeah. So there you are, 17 years old, and uh, who were you living with at the time? Uh, I was, um, I actually had been living in, in Portland, Oregon um, with my sister um, and uh, with um, my girlfriend. Um, and um, I'd already graduated from high school. Um, and uh, it was, uh, my sister had gone to New York and, and she actually died in New York. Um, and I, I think at that point, um, you know, I didn't really come to terms with her suicide until many years later when I turned the same age that she was when she died, um, <clears throat> which was 30. So, um, you know, and, and, and that, that point in time, it was just kind of this, this shock, I think, this kind of collective numbing out of the family. So you, you went through this tragedy actually at least three times. You went through it at the shock at 17. You went through it again, you're saying, when you were about 30. And then, of course, you relive it to a certain extent when you're writing the book and making the film about a younger man, yourself, who's 17 and 30 years old. Yes. <clears throat> <clears throat> You know, one of the things that I came to realize about the book is that, that the book ultimately is um, about um, the investigation and healing of intergenerational trauma. And um, my my deep work in doing the book was was really getting close to many members in my family. Some of them I didn't even know existed until I started who were uh, Jewish relatives um, in Hungary, but but getting close to members of my family, both living and dead, and imagining their lives, and seeing them in their in their context, and um, and that was a a healing process to sort of see them in the round as individuals in the world in which they lived. Um, and um, I don't know, there's at, at the end of the book, uh, there's, um, there's a couple sentences which really kind of sum up 
that whole intention and journey. Um, if I don't have a book right here on my desk, but if you want, I can read it at some point. <clears throat> so you met these relatives later in life, correct? Correct. Yes. So you've got this story that you're starting to tell in the book. First, you started the movie, then the book, then came back to the movie as you as you tell it. During that period, how much later? How old is this, this is going on in recent years, in the last 10 years or so that you met yes. these people? Correct? Yeah, I, yes. I mean, I'd, I'd met principal character, my cousin, when I was in, in my 40s um, uh, in Hungary. Um, and he was the one that actually told me that we were Jewish. Uh, so I learned that when I was about 40. And then when I went back to work on the film and interview him in depth, I also met um, other cousins. And that was in, in the past 10 years. Um, I started this project when I was 60. Um, I'm 69 now. Um, and um, uh, so that was that was a time span. I have a friend named Inez Stora, and when she was sixty-three years old, her mother was dying, and her mother told her on her deathbed that although she raised Inez as a Catholic, she was really Jewish, and that was the first time she ever uh, heard about it. And Inez then make, hears this, and her mother dies, and she starts to investigate, and she finds out that there's a whole group of people in the southwest of the United States uh, called conversos, and they are all living Catholic, but they're Jewish. And what they many of them do is they have a um, a statue of the Madonna in front of their homes uh, out in the grass to show the world that they're Catholic. But what they have done is before they put the statue out there, they have carved out a piece of the foot and made a hole. And in the hole, they put the Jewish mezuzah and then they cover it over again and shellac it. And when they come into their homes at night, they kneel down in front of the Madonna and kiss the foot. And the neighbors all think that they are being very pious and kissing the Madonna's foot, which they are. But what they're also doing is paying homage to the fact that there's the Jewish mezuzah in the foot, uh, which they are they're maintaining that. And so Inez went and started to meet with these people, and it opened up a whole area of, our, of, of her life. And I thought of, of her when I'm reading your book about you finding out as an adult. And, and what, what is it like? What was it like for you when your relative tells you this? How do you deal with it? Well, at first, I didn't believe him. And, um, uh, and then he... he we were in Budapest and he took me on a walk um, through the city. And uh, the first place we stopped was the, was the great synagogue in Budapest, Budapest, the Dahan synagogue. 
and there was a Holocaust memorial. And in this memorial, there was a glass case that was filled with um, uh, documents uh, which were false identity papers, which Hungarian Jews had used to escape the Nazi round, roundups in uh, 1944. And my cousin pointed these out to me and um, I was curious. And as we were walking out of the synagogue, I said, are, are you Jewish? And he said, well, of course I am. And so are you. And I said, how is that possible? And then he took me to his home pulled out an old shoebox and um, showed me similar false identity papers from my grandparents, as well as all the birth certificates of my father and, and his sister and other members of the family who were all identified as Israelite or Jewish on birth. And my reaction to that was um, sort of astonishment and also kind of a sense of, oh, okay, there's something about this that makes sense. Because although my father told a lot of stories, wonderful stories about himself, there were these gaps. And, um, you know, like, well, he went to South America to find his fame and fortune in 1939. Why did he go there? Well, he went there because it was one of the Bolivia was one of the few places that were giving Jews, giving uh, visas to Jews. Um, so all this, all these things were kind of hidden. The motivations were hidden, um, but things started to make sense. And I, um, about a year later, it was his birthday. He was by then an old man and quite frail. And um, I went to visit him. And I said, hey, dad, I heard this story in Hungary that we may be Jewish. And there was this silence and his, his, his face completely decomposed. I'd never seen a face on him like that. It was a face of absolute fear. And um, he said, oh, no, we were, we were I believe we were Seventh-day Adventists who immigrated from Transylvania in the 18th century. I said, oh, that's nice. You know, I didn't press it with him because I, I just, I was so shocked by the expression on his face that, um, that I, I, I lost my desire to kind of pressure him into explaining why he'd hid this. So the fear that had driven him from Europe to Bolivia in 1939 was still manifest all those decades later that you saw on his face. Evidently, that's what got triggered. Well, I mean, it's, it's an open question. Um, you know, it's a question that runs through the book, which is never, which is speculated on, but never completely answered. So why... And it's it's a common story of people hiding their Jewish identity. I mean, Madeleine Albright is a good example of that. Um, but I think that um, you know when when he left for Bolivia, he was a, a you know t puckish twenty something kid who went with some of his 
friends and they it was for them it was just kind of like they didn't think of themselves as refugees you know they they didn't acknowledge that they were refugees even though they were on a ship that was filled with refugees but i think um you know why not talk about being jewish one is possibly survivor guilt um quite a few of my relatives died in auschwitz um my grandparents did not die but they had uh horrible time during the siege of Budapest. Um, <clears throat> so a, a, a knowledge of everything that had happened to his family and a guilt about it, survivor guilt, is one possibility. Another possibility is that, um, and I think you experience this with Holocaust survivors, is not wanting to talk about it because just to talk about it conjures it up. And if you don't speak about it, then you might not bring it down upon the heads of the next generation. So there's a kind of protective thing. Um, and then also in the 40s and 50s, um, there was quite a bit of anti-Semitism in the profession that he was in, and he might not have advanced as spectacularly as he did if it had been known that he was a Jew. Um, and, you know, that we well know that anti-Semitism still persists. So he went in 39 to Bolivia and he lived there for a couple of years and, and made an impact. Tell us a little bit about the impact that he made on Bolivia and then take us to the United States where he moved next. Sure. <clears throat> Well, I mean, everybody wanted to get to the United States. All the Jew, Jews wanted to get to the United States. Um, but it was very difficult because there was an immigration quota. And um, he had first tried to get a visa to Bolivia in 1938, 1937, I think. Uh, uh, to, sorry, uh, visa to the States. He went to Bolivia because um, uh, a friend of his uh, was able to obtain visas for uh, 13 Hungarian schoolmates who'd all gone to college together, um, who were all engineers. And Bolivia at that time had just suffered a, a, a war with Paraguay, a devastating war, and the infrastructure of the country was really destroyed. And there was this huge need for people with technical skills. So when they arrived, um, you know, they were um, welcomed with open arms because of because of their knowledge and their skills. And within a few months, um, Paul was was designing and supervising the construction of some of the first reinforced concrete modern buildings in La Paz. Um, and uh, he was 24 years old at the time. <laughs> and it, it was it was a question of being the in the right place at the right time because Bolivia didn't even have reinforced concrete until 1934. So he arrived, he had these skills in concrete and, and statics, building statics, and um, he you know became a principal architect for really the only firm in Bolivia that was making modern urban structures in 1939 and 1940. Um, his um, other Hungarian friends who um, 
we're all engineers of different varieties um, formed a company um, to uh, subcontract um, all kinds of jobs. And uh, we're extremely successful for a while. Um, and when I went to Bolivia, I was able to um, to film some of the buildings that my father had worked on that were still standing um, and talk to the the son of the man who'd hired him um, and uh, also the children of, of other Hungarians who had immigrated there. And so what caused him to leave? Was it the desire to be in the United States because it was a better place to be? Yeah, he he felt that, um, you know, he wanted to be where things were happening. And, um, you know, he he uh, he wrote to Le Corbusier, you know, his mentor rather contemptuously, you know, that Bolivia was this kind of backward country. And, um, you know, it was it was very good to him financially, but it was he, he, he wanted to go where trends were being set in architecture and where things were happening. And he also really wanted to to get involved in the war. Um, and so uh, he was finally able to get a visa to the United States. H- how he did is somewhat of a mystery, actually, in 1943, because it was very difficult. Um, but when he arrived in the United States, um, there were... Um, a number of Hungarians who had been associated with the Bauhaus modernist movement, um, most notably um, Laszlo Moholy-Nagy were already there and were able to kind of steer him and, and gradually he was able to you know, find a footing professionally in the States. And when he moved to the States, he moved there with your mom because she had already joined him from from Europe in Bolivia, correct? That's correct, yes. Okay, so the young couple now moved to the United States. He's starting not quite all over again because I guess he already has somewhat of a reputation. Yes. And what happens next? Well, um, he uh, he works for various architects and um, in uh, 1948-1949, he he starts his own company um, and begins working more as a structural engineer than as an architect, um, working for, um, uh, you know, working as an engineer with architects. And, you know, he worked with um, Marcel Breuer, Eros Saarinen, um, uh, the guy who did the, uh, Wheeler Arts Center uh, in Minneapolis. Um, the names are escaping me, but he he um, he began working. Uh, Gordon Bunshaft was um, a prominent architect who uh, built some of the great New York City skyscrapers, and he and Bunshaft got along great and uh, did work together. Um, and um, at the same time, my mother was was trying to find her footing, and um, and she had her first psychotic episode in 1948, and um, 
was um, hospitalized and had uh, electroshock treatment, uh, insulin shock treatment, um, and um, and then a few years later, I was I was born in 1953. And where were you born, Tom? In New York City. Yeah. And raised there for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then it was uh, in 61, eight years later, when your parents were divorced. Yeah, you have a great memory <laughs> of the chronology. Yes, that's correct. Well, I told you I read the book. <laughs> yes, you did, yeah. <laughs> so you're growing up now with a mother who's got some pretty serious uh, uh, mental uh, disturbances, mental aberrations. And... Um, then you're 61, you're eight years old, your folks get divorced. And and uh, did you live with your mom or your dad? Well, I was sent off to boarding school. and um, At age eight? At age nine, yeah. Nine. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think the idea was that if I was in boarding school, you know, uh, that I would be safe from, from my mother. Um, but my, my father... Um, you know, this this comes up in the book and the film. I don't want to give too much away as a spoiler, but um, uh, I had to go see my mom on vacations. And that was always a scary time. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it was in, 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 in the book and in the film. And in, in the film, I actually, um, I worked with a, a wonderful cast of Hungarian actors and technicians. Uh, we filmed a lot of scenes on a soundstage in Budapest. And the scenes were, were um, they were in a white limbo. So they were kind of like scenes out, out of memory, out of a dream, rather than sort of representing, you know, a sort of concrete reality. And they were memories from my childhood um, with my schizophrenic mother you know, and what that was like growing up with her and also visits to my dad as a child. So there are actually three little Hungarian boys who are me at different ages in the film. They don't speak any English in the film because it's it's narrated over, but they are our, our characters in the film. And there's also... Um, my father and mother are also recreated in the film. Um, and that was a sort of uncanny experience because it was, it was so real to me. I was there directing it um, and I was directing um, these characters who were my family. Yes. And they seemed like my family. Yes. And um it was um it was spooky, but it was also a very healing experience. It was really interesting. It was like sort of creating um a, a drama of one's childhood. And and you're a psychologist. There's a there's a word for that, right? Yeah, um, psychodrama. Psychodrama, exactly. Um 
And um, so I was, I was directing the psychodrama of my childhood in, in front of cameras with brilliant actors and a, and a brilliant Hungarian crew. You were actually doing a technique that we do in individual, but more often in group psychotherapy, where we have people psychodramatically act out parts of their lives and sometimes parts of their childhood. And when it's done in group therapy, we sometimes have people play various roles their parents, their brothers, their sisters, and so on, in the psychodramatic uh, acting. And in, in effect, you, you created that uh, even more so because you had professionals playing the, the, the roles of your family members. Yes. Yeah. No, I'm, my wife is a psychologist, so I'm familiar with that. Oh. Um, and, and what was interesting is... is um, I worked with a, a wonderful casting director in Budapest who who spent six months looking for people that looked like members of my family because we were intercutting these with actual photographs of people. And so it, it was it was quite uncanny that she managed to pull this off. That 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 is something. Now we're gonna come back now your father to the story of your dad, and then we'll intersperse it with stories of you making the film and writing the book. I, I, I do want to interrupt you, actually, because... Certainly. Um, and this is partly my fault because of the way I, I originally... You know, this this is about the restless Hungarian, but it's, it is about one man. But actually, the film is really about a family. Um, you know, so, so, you know, the characters of my mother and my sister and, um, well, it's, it's, it's a broader canvas than just a story about a great man. Um, and he was a great man, but he was also deeply, deeply flawed. And, um, you know, as, as a teenager, I actually hated my father. Um, and that Why? also, why did you hate him? I hated him because he um, he was involved in uh, the nuclear arms race, um, and he was um, uh, fascinated with the physics of the the uh, hydrogen bomb and uh, designing um, uh, missile silos for intercontinental ballistic missiles that might withstand a Soviet first strike. So that was one of the sort of many things that he became involved with. But I think beyond that, he was, um, he himself, he was a survivor, um, but in order to survive, he had um, cauterized emotionally a part of himself. So he wasn't very present as a father. And uh, he himself had lost his mother in the influenza epidemic of 1918 when he was four years old. So um, there was, a, I think in order to survive, he was a man who had to wall off and compartmentalize um, great portions of his life. So he, he, um, he was a father who I knew loved me. 
he often said that he loved me, but he didn't know who I was or how to interact with me. Um, and uh, because he had to cut off a part of himself that could have interacted with me. So that's also a part of the story and a part of the film. You mentioned uh, your dad, your dad's mother died when he was uh, four. Mm -hmm. Your father came from uh, an illustrious family within that all, many of whom were connected directly or indirectly to his profession of architecture and engineering. Tell us a bit about your dad's father and the family that he came from. And I also want to put them in the historical context, which is that um, in Hungary in the 19th century, um, uh, many Jews assimilated, you know, they stopped speaking Yiddish, they started speaking Hungarian. Um, but it was um, for a period a relatively good place for Jews to be living because there weren't the, the pogroms that were going on in the rest of Europe. And they were allowed access to the um, educational system, which was quite good. So, um, you know, 90% of Hungary at the turn of the 20th century was illiterate. Uh, you know, 7% were the, you know, 4% were the landed aristocracy that had the land holding and, and you know, basically ruled over the serfs. It was a feudal society. And then there were the Jews. And the Jews were, were the, the professional classes who had taken advantage of the education and who were, you know, the doctors, the lawyers, the journalists, the poets, the writers. Um, uh, and they were, in a sense, kind of the the, midwi <clears throat> the midwives of ushering Hungary into the 20th century. And um, my, you know, and they, they were, they were tolerated because they, they kind of made the system work. Um, and uh, so my family was a part of that. They were upper middle class. My, my grandfather was, um, was a builder. Um, uh, uh, architect um, built a lot of um, apartment buildings in Budapest in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, and my father kind of rebelled against this um, upper middle class Jewish society in which it was very clearly determined, you know how you would live your life, who you would marry, and so on and so forth. And when he was 15, um, joined an underground communist youth cell uh, uh, to kind of, as an act of rebellion. Sorry about that. So, um, yeah, have I answered your question? Yeah, you're talking about your dad. Um, yeah, about about the history of the family. You're, you're segueing back to your dad now, him joining the, the uh, this communist group when he was 14 years old. Mm -hmm. So he's he's obviously got a head on his shoulders, and he's thinking, mm -hmm. and he's looking at class structure. Yeah, right. And he's looking at stratification, and he's yes. ev evidently quite aware of the fact that there's a two class system. 
Yes. Uh, and I, I think it's interesting to be talking about this at this particular moment in, in American history because there are indications that the United States is moving somewhat quickly towards a cl two-class system, yes. whereas for so many years, decades, if not longer, we've prided ourselves, at least some of us have in the United States, on having a three-class system, not that we like the different classes, but that the, the, the middle class has been considered you know, the the, uh, the emblem to the world that we have this great middle class, which has yeah. now seemed to be uh, diminishing. And perhaps that's not even strong enough a word for what's going on now. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Yeah. So your dad was aware of that back then uh, in the 20s, 30s, and uh, he became a became a, a, a involved in a communist organization with a group of friends. Was this the same group of friends that he stuck with for his whole life, the ones that went to Bolivia? Was that later on that he connected with what you refer to as the Gang of 13? Well, <clears throat> some of them, yes. I mean, basically, at, at, in the early 1920s, after the First World War, um, Hungary was on the losing side, and as a result of the Treaty of Versailles and the Treaty of Trinidad, lost a lot of its territory. And so um, a lot of Hungarians that, you know, had been living in parts of Hungary that are now Romania or Slovakia or um, uh, Georgia, you know, came back to Budapest, you know, were unemployed, and there was this backlash against the Jews who were, you know, held all these professional positions. And as a result of that, a law was passed that limited the number of Jews um, that could go to university, um, a kind of quota system. And because of that, my father and uh, had to go study in, uh, in um, Czechoslovakia, in Brunn. And that's where he met... Um, a lot of the other Hungarians that he ended up immigrating to um, to Bolivia with, and m most of them were were communists, um, and had sort of embraced this this Marxist ideal. Did you, did your dad maintain that uh, Marxist idealism throughout his life, or what happened with that? No, he did not. Um, he, I think that he was he was caught up in the romance of being part of this clandestine movement, the excitement of it. And, um, he, he really was not that active in it, in his, in his college years. And then obviously when he, when he came to the United, it's sort of interesting that he was able to do all this work, for the U.S. military establishment, especially during the time of the McCarthy era hearings, that his communist past was not uncovered um, because he was he was doing top secret work. Um, so he he very much you know uh, left that behind. And I think once once a lot of these guys saw what Stalin did. 
to his people, you know, they they lost interest in in the, in the communist ideal. Yeah, I want to read something uh, that you wrote in your book here, uh, and, and you're talking about your dad now is 23 years old, mm-hmm. and he's he's denouncing Plato and Kant as allies of uh, of the bourgeois capitalists. Yes, <laughs> and and he rejects the Platonic idea of a divine constant, which yes. we all know about, right? The yes. Form and beauty, and instead. Your dad, at 23, he offers the Marxist view that, and I quote, beauty is only an idea that stems from the ideology of a particular time and place. This is important because those who shape the ideology of an era, writers, artists, and architects, can enlist art in the service of that ideology and in doing so guide the world towards a brighter future. That's a really interesting comment, and that's why I, I uh, underlined it and wanted to read it, because it, uh, it it's it's a it's a very it's a huge change from a constant that beauty is and that forms are to a yeah. to a, a belief in in, a, in what you might call self self determinism that the yeah. people the people of the time develop the culture. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, it was, it was kind of youthful enthusiasm there. Um, he, um, you know, the idea that that that, uh, that one could use beauty in the, in the service of political ideology um, and that one actually determined what was beautiful is, is a bit... Um, Mm, I'm not going to say fanatical, but it's a bit, uh, <laughs> it's, 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 it's kind of naive. And I think that, um, he probably, you know, even 10 years later wouldn't have agreed with that. Um, his, I, I think his most beautiful idea, which has kind of withstood the test of time is, is the, an idea about the kind of metaphysics of spatial relationships in architecture, what he calls the joy of space. And um, he comes up with this idea at, at the time, modernists like Le Corbusier and Mahalinaj very much embraced the machine, you know, factory machines as, as the kind of ideal where um, form, form follows function. And Le Corbusier famously said, a house is a machine for living in. And my father worked for Le Corbusier for a short period of time. And, and he disagreed with that. He said, there's something lifeless about that. And um, he said, you know, what, what characterizes modern architecture is not a particular style, but it's, it's a, it's a relationship to space in which one can move through space um, in in a way that is liberating, and and he, um, it, you know, it's, he's he's hard pressed to describe it. He he talks about what doesn't work, and what doesn't work is what Le Corbusier was into was this kind of mass production housing for the population where everything was very rational 
and stamped out and very pragmatic and very efficient and well done. But there was like a soul that was missing there. And I think my father tried to write about that. If your father wanted wanted to integrate more of the form before the function or along with the function rather than everything being dictated by function, which is what Cabussier was implying, correct? Yeah, I think also another characteristic was that in the house that my father designed that I grew up in in the summers, um, there was this sense of, of, of a very permeable barrier between inside and outside, you know, that, that the house stood lightly on the land and there were these huge floor to ceiling panel glass panels. And so it was like, you were, you know, you, you were in connection with the natural world outside the walls of the house, even when you were inside the house and that sort of, um, sense of, 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 of a permeable boundary between inside and out was an important concept that he was working with. Was your dad connected with Philip Johnson? He you certainly know? knew of him, you know, uh, but he never, I don't think he ever worked on anything of Johnson's pieces. I thought of Johnson when you said about the glass panels, because when I was a teenager, I was fortunate enough to see Philip Johnson's glass house in Connecticut. And it, it really influenced my my whole life in terms of my views of of living. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you had that experience, you know, growing up. Would you you want to talk to us some about what you see as your father's major contributions, either uh, architecturally, structurally, or or philosophically? Hmm. Well, um, the people that he respected the most and loved the most were artists. And late in life, he, or late in his career, rather, he um, befriended the French artist uh, um, Jean Dubuffet, um, who was um, it's hard to describe Dubuffet, but anyway, Dubuffet uh, built this landscape in France, which was um, he called it the Villa Falbala, and it was this strange structure which had no straight corners and um, uh, was maybe two stories high and inside the walls were were completely covered with paintings sort of like hieroglyphics Um, and then surrounding the structure was was a a a landscape that was kind of shaped out of ferro concrete and and painted and um, Dubuffet like my father was was a fairly whimsical character and my father fell in love with him and basically offered to do the engineering of Villa Falbala for free. Um, you know, uh, and it was very difficult because there were no straight lines, no square corners. And so he 
most closely identified. Yes, exactly. That's it. Um, uh, go down. There you go. That's it. That's it. So he did the engineering on that. And then he went on to uh, engineer um, uh, other sculptures of De Buffet. One is called Four Trees, which is at the Chase Manhattan uh, Bank in, in New York. Um, and then he uh, ended up working with a, another sculptor, Asamu uh, Noguchi, Japanese artist. Um, and he he kind of he thought that you know the art was the highest thing and that these artists were his were the kind of saints in his pantheon um and um in terms of more conventional structures i mean there's um there's the cbs uh black rock building in new york done by Eero Saarinen. there's a couple of churches uh by Breuer, uh, Marcel Breuer in the Midwest. He did the Whitney Museum with Breuer in New York, the old Whitney. Um, I'm going to show did... the Picasso that your dad worked on also. Yes, yeah. That is a, a, a wind tunnel model for a huge sculpture. I think it's 168 tons um, in Daly, Daly Plaza in Chicago. And um, the the engineering work on that was to how how could you have the wings the flanges of that sculpture um be uh be safe in in a in in the windy city and in a, in a big wind and so he did the engineering on that and i want you to say a few words about the relationship between engineering, structural engineering, and art, because I'm not sure that people understand that, why the, the, the critical dimension of having a structural engineer involved in these art projects. We so often think of art as something you paint or something that the artist creates themselves. Okay. Well, I mean, in engineers, structural engineers are basically the guys that... Um, keep buildings from falling down. <laughs> the architect has the idea and the engineer figures how to realize that idea and use the correct materials of the correct sizes so it, it withstands the forces of nature and, and of gravity. And one engineer who uh, put it to me most beautifully, said, he said, we provide the strength behind the beauty. And... Um, my father was was an interesting engineer in that he also contributed to the beauty because often he would make suggestions that would influence the design of the building um, uh, in fairly dramatic ways. So he was what I would call a a creative structural engineer. To answer your question about art, the art that we're talking about are are monumental sculptures, sometimes two, three, four stories high in um, public spaces. And they, um, they also had to be kept from falling down. And, uh, you know, a really good example of that is Asamo Noguchi's uh, Bolt of Lightning, which stands in Philadelphia, which is a memorial to Ben Franklin. 
and it's this sort of jagged steel thing that sort of points up to the sky and um uh Noguchi kept changing the design of that and making it more and more difficult to engineer and my father said about him if i didn't love Noguchi so much i would never have taken on this job <laughs> well i'm trying to find a picture here of that uh Noguchi and uh see if i can if I can show it up on the screen, I find the, the Picasso here. You know, before no. we end, I, I would also just like to say a little bit about how people can access stuff, you know. Yeah. That's it. That's Noguchi's Bolt of Lightning. For Ben Franklin, my hero. Yeah. Okay. Yes, you're going to say something because we are running out of time. Yeah. Um so in the process of writing um, the book and making the film, um, I wrote a lot of blog, po blog posts about the creative process. And they, um, you know, some of them include short videos. I mean, they're short videos about some of the architects and structures, things that are not in the film, uh, kind of stories that, that, that I sort of crossed paths with and said, oh, this is an interesting story. So I wrote a blog about it, put it in the blog post. Um, a lot of photographs, a lot of videos and about architecture, about engineering and also about the creative process, um, about writing and filmmaking. So uh, restlesshungarian.com is the website. And uh, from there, you can also, um, find uh, find out how to buy the book. You can get it on Amazon and a bunch of other places. And then um, the film uh, will be having its its um, first screening ever, public screening ever at the Mendocino Film Festival on Friday, June 3rd. Um, and I will be there. And I will also be at the Gallery Bookstore in Mendocino um, signing books and doing what they call a meet and greet. So I just wanted to get that in there. Very much so. Thank you. And when will you be at the gallery bookstore in Mendocino, Tom? Do you know? Saturday at 11 o'clock. Saturday at 11. Yeah. Mend Mend the gallery bookstore in Mendocino. Again, the film will be shown at the International Mendocino Film Festival. Which night, Tom? It will be shown actually on, on Friday... Um, it's going to be shown, I believe, at the theater that they're using in Fort Bragg in, I think, at 11 o'clock in the morning, something like at that. At the Coast Theater in Fort Bragg as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for your interview today. I look it's forward been a to, pleasure. I look forward to meeting you at the film festival. Thank I will you. be there. And... Uh, Please stay with us next week at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time for the next edition of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. <laughs>